The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Barron's Live Market Watch Edition. I'm Vic Reclitus, a reporter at Market Watch, and I'm joined today by Seth Hanlon, a senior fellow at the Center for American Progress, and Kyle Pomerlow, a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. We're going to dig into the Build Back Better Act, which has already passed the House but still needs to get the Senate's okay before President Biden can sign it into law. It's a roughly $2 trillion social spending and climate bill. Uh, so there's a lot in the bill. I wanted to start off with a high-level question for our guests. And um, Kyle, if you could go first. Um, with this bill, what do you think is good about it? Um, what's bad and what's ugly? Yeah. Thanks, Victor. Um, so just as a broad overview here, the bills aim to raise additional revenue on the tax side in order to finance new sh- social spending. And I don't think we're going to get too much in, on into the spending side. Um, so I'm going to focus a little bit more on the tax side. So I'll go through some of the things I think might be good policy, some of the things that might be a little iffy, and then maybe what might be bad policy here. So on the good side, um, you know, unfortunately, it's not too much on the reform, the tax reform side. Um, I think Democrats were focusing much more on raising revenue than fixing the way that revenue is raised um, at the federal level. Um, but there are things that I think are reasonable policy. Uh, point to one, I think um, they're delaying um, the amortization of research and uh, development costs, um, the, the amortization of those expenditures. Um, that was passed as part of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, and that provision was scheduled to take a, in effect, take effect next year and raise the te- the cost of investing in in research and development. I think pausing that is a good idea. Although I'd like to see that permanently um, gotten rid of and maintaining the um, current policy of expensing. I also think changes to the net investment income tax that are that are part of the Build Back Better are reasonable reforms. Um, some of the things that are not so great, I think that, and we might get into this a little bit more, there's some budget gimmickry going on um, in order to reduce the cost of the bill overall. Um, you see that with the state and local tax deduction, um, the, the lifting of that cap. Um, that's a tax cut that is going to occur for a couple of years, but then that's reversed as a tax increase. Um, and then there's also... Uh, the child tax credit, that's expanded for a single year, um, or at least most of it is extended for a single year. Some of it's permanent. Um, And those two things, uh, while costly in the first couple of years, kind of go away because of the way that they're temporary. And then on the policy side, just what I think is like not very good policy, I just highlight the, the minimum tax on book uh, book income um, paid by large multina- multinational corporations. I think a tax like that, a, a, an additional parallel tax, adds additional complexity and it really doesn't do much to uh, to scale back um, a lot of the deductions and credits that lawmakers are well, presumably are concerned of when they, concerned about when they look at corporations paying low effective tax rates. 
Um, Seth, go ahead. Uh, what's what's good, bad, and ugly? Sure, sure. Um, well, so I think good, I, I'll focus on two things. Um, I mean, I think a lot's good in this bill, but uh, to focus primarily on two things. I mean, I think number one, there's just a major historic investment in children um, in several different ways, in improving childcare and making uh, pre-K universal, giving states the, um, the funding to do that. Um, and then also the uh, extension of the fully refundable child tax credit, which is, I think is already having a, a very positive impact on children's lives. Um, and so, and I, and I think this is the, one of the best investments we can make because um, it's going to pay long-term dividends in the, in the form of um, better prospects uh, for, for children. Uh, and the, so there's also a uh, historic, the biggest investment ever. Uh, in addressing climate change. We are finally addressing the problem of climate change. Um, it's not everything that needs to be done, um, but it gets us a long way towards our climate goals. Um, and these things are funded, like Kyle said, for, by progressive uh, revenue sources. So I think those are the, that, you know, that, so that's the, the good. Um, the bad, I mean, I, I'm not sure, you know, definitely uh, support this bill, but I'll, I'll say there's a couple of ways that I think it could have gone further. Um, number one, there are, um, you know, progressive revenue raisers. It's, it's, um, there's a uh, surtax that effectively raises the sort of top bracket rate on very, very, very high income people over $10 million. There's other um, progressive loophole closers like the one Kyle mentioned on the net investment income tax. Um, but the bill could have gone further in, um, in uh, taxing income from wealth. Uh, and in particularly closing the um, or, or, or expanding the capital gains tax base in the way that uh, President Biden had originally proposed uh, that, did, that, that didn't make it into the bill. Um, and then I think, you know, the bill could definitely go further in, um, you know, in, in that some of the programs are temporary, including the child tax credit is, is just for one year. So that's going to we're going to have to be ba uh, back trying to extend that next year. Um, and then uh, the ugly, I mean, I, I guess I just say that, you know, the legislative process is ugly. Um, it's always ugly. And I think um, it gets uglier every year. And I think that's because of systemic, some, some systemic issues, in particular, the fact that the really the only way to get major things done now is to roll them up into one massive bill. Um, I think it would be much better if we had, you know, a child care bill a healthcare bill, um, a climate change bill, you know, because um, people could under, understand and you know, people support all these things. And I think people would, would see the, the benefits more clearly. Instead, all those things are rolled up into one um, massive bill that I think, you know, and, and it's obviously chaotic. The process appears chaotic. Um, the, you know, it's always a legislative sausage making. Um, but I think, it, you know, the fact that it's all put together in one bill makes it harder for people to understand and see uh, what's in it because there's so many things in it. Okay, great. Uh, thanks, guys. So um, I want to remind viewers to go ahead and ask questions if you got them. Um, and we've already gotten a few uh, from people as they registered. I wanted to, to jump to one of those. Um, a viewer named Robert asks, uh, what sectors are most impacted and what individual stocks are most levered to the legislation? Um, so to before I kick it to you guys, I mean, we've written about how Tesla and other electrical vehicle makers would benefit from a tax credit. Um, I think that the energy sector and healthcare are affected, but um, I guess, Kyle, if you could start us off again this time, um, 
what do you think in terms of sector impact and even individual uh, publicly traded companies uh, that might be impacted? Yeah, so I, I may lean away for a little bit about talking about any specific companies. I mean, these are, I, I think some of these effects uh, may be broad um, and maybe talking about those might be helpful. I think one, one thing that we haven't discussed yet that might be important for, say, the pharmaceutical industry or the tech industry, maybe some of the changes to the tax treatment of foreign profits of U.S. multinationals. We haven't really discuss this, but I think it's actually a very a major change that's being proposed as part of the Build Back Better Act. And this change is it would um, it would reform or you know, tweak the way and raise the tax burden on foreign profits by enacting or raising our current minimum tax guilty global intangible low tax income from the 13.125% up to about 15%. Um, and it would change the way that that guilty is calculated. It would make the calculation country by country instead of looking at all foreign profits at once. It would reduce the exemption for qualified assets that are held overseas. Um, and it would line it up more with what the OECD is looking to do. And the aim of, of the minimum tax to some degree is to get at some companies and industries that have a global footprint that use a lot of intellectual property, for example, to shift profits um, out of higher tax countries into lower tax countries. Um, and the, these changes have um, the potential to impact um, some of these companies being in tech and pharmaceutical, um, specifically where you know, use, the use of IP is pretty heavy. Um, Seth, Seth, what do you think in terms of sectors? Yeah, I, I was going to point to the uh, the main thing that Kyle pointed to was, which was the international um, corporate tax reform. Um, both the um, outbound, you know, American companies that uh, are reporting high percentage of profits in um, very low tax countries, um, but also the inbound um, foreign um, headed companies that uh, are paying little tax in the United States, but by shifting profits out of out of the United States, there are provisions to um, to strengthening the provisions that that are aimed at preventing those. Um, I mean, in terms of um, other sectors, I mean, I'm not sure there's there's, um, you know, major investment in housing supply. So I would imagine, you know, housing supply and also in um, transportation infrastructure like transit um, uh, and um, you know, electric vehicle charging stations. Um, so I would imagine that a lot of the industries that are uh, in uh, construction, um, you know, residential housing would, would benefit from those as well. Okay, cool. Um, and Seth, let me stick with you um, for this other uh, question. This is um, from Jim. He says, is it now law, is, is it in this bill now that banks have to report any account that has transactions over $10,000 annually? I know you've I've written about the uh, bank reporting uh, issue. Um, what could you give Jim in terms of an update on, on what's in there right now? Um, so short answer is nothing's in there right now. So that provision, that proposal by President Biden um, was not included in the House bill, I think, because of, um, because of wide opposition within the House and Senate. And I think uh, there was a strong lobbying campaign against it. I think many of the claims that were made about that proposal were highly misleading. Um, 
and uh, even demag demagogic. Uh, I think the proposal was much did much was much less um, was barely uh, uh, intrusive um, and would have really helped uh, uh, reduce the tax gap. In other words, uh, help the IRS uh, collect the taxes that are owed. Um, but the provision was dropped, so it's just it's it's not in the bill. Um, there are discussions going on in the Senate for a much more limited approach. Um, and so they might be focusing, uh, only, you know, something like only on um, business or entity accounts. Um, but I think the general, you know, uh, the broad proposal of um, reporting on all bank accounts that have a, a certain threshold of inflows and outflows um, is not in the bill and it's not going to be in the bill. Okay. Um, so I'll do uh, one other viewer question. Um, this is from Mike. He says, I am concerned that this huge bill will increase in, increase inflation and decrease the value of the dollar. And he also says, any estimates of how much of the cost will be paid for by increased taxes and how much will just be added to the deficit? Uh, now, before I uh, kick it to you guys, my colleague, uh, Jeff Bartash, has written uh, basically a roundup from economists on Wall Street who basically their consensus was the spending plan won't make U.S. inflation, won't make high U.S. inflation much worse. So folks can check that out. The headline is why Biden's $2 trillion spending plan won't make U.S. high U.S. inflation much worse. Um, but uh, Kyle, if you could start us off on this question from Mike, please. Yeah, not not too much here, but um, I, I do. I I agree with that sentiment that I think at the margin, the additional spending may have some impact, but it's not going to be a huge, huge um, hit um, hit to inflation. I think you're, you're following this debate, a lot of this is coming from the, the, the economic recovery from COVID-19, and that demand seems to be outstripping supply to a great deal that supply chains were hit pretty hard um, from the drastic slowdown in economic activity. But government policy kept purchasing power of consumers you know, relatively stable um, throughout, throughout the pandemic. Um, so as people are getting back to normal and demand for goods and services are increasing, the supply may not be increasing as much. Uh, you know, will Biden's proposal have a big negative impact? Uh, you know, not a I don't think it's going to be huge. Uh, I think there's going to be some pressure to the extent that it's going to continue to increase um, consumer demand. Um, but you know, I, I don't think it's going to, you know, you know I think I agree with the, uh, the sentiment in that, in that piece. Uh, Seth, go ahead. So, I mean, I think, as, you know, as to the impact on deficits, the bill is fully paid for. Um, I mean, I think there's some um, there's some disagreement about the uh, tax enforcement provisions and how much they'll raise. Um, but if you take the more conservative view that um, say CBO did, um, the bill is almost, uh, you know, adds to the deficit only really slightly over 10 years. And then if you take the um, uh, more optimistic, which I which I think are even conservative estimates uh, of Treasury, um, the bill reduces the the deficits um, by a little bit over over ten years, um, and then the bill is going to reduce deficits. Uh, clearly, is going to be going to reduce um, deficits over time. Um, as to the impact on inflation, um, you know, some, so some of the um, investments are are front loaded, so they're more in the in the early years, whereas more whereas the um, deficit reduction is you know happens more over time. 
Um, but I, I do agree with Kyle and I think the, the consensus that any impact on inflation is going to be um, marginal at, at most. Um, and I mean, I think more importantly, though, you know, when we think about inflation, we're thinking about the ability of people and families to meet costs. And this bill helps families meet their costs in so many different ways, um, including, I mean, for example, the, the continuation of the uh, expanded child tax credit. Um, the monthly payments go through uh, December, and they, but they would stop if the bill doesn't pass. The bill would extend them uh, into January and throughout 2022. Um, and the bill lowers costs for, you know, for childcare by creating universal pre-K, expands health coverage to in many of the states that um, that refuse the Med Medicare expansion. Um, so in, in just so many ways, this bill lowers costs on, on families, including the immediate um, aid from the child tax credit. Um, so I think, you know, to the extent that uh, people are experiencing inflation, the bill um, the bill is going to actually lower their costs. Okay, um, and maybe just one quick follow-up question since this is a, a hot topic and inflation hasn't been running hot. Um, and I think maybe for Kyle, I mean, a viewer named Max says, um, he talks about the 17 economists that Biden and his his team always talk to that say, um, this, they're 17 Nobel laureates. They always talk, it's one of their talking points for the administration that they say there won't be a, a long-term effect on inflation. I mean, he's wondering if, if this view on inflation and what the bill would do, if this is just uh, from left-leaning economists or is it, um, uh, you know, right, center, left economists, do they all kind of have the same view on inflation and this bill? I, I think there's there are differing uh, views on this. And I, I my one issue with that talking point is that I think that that, that letter came prior to the details of the Build Back Better Act. So I just a little um, skeptical on that claim. You know, I, I think zero impact, not, I don't really buy that. I think that there is some impact. One thing I'll add to this discussion, um, if, if you're thinking that inflation is going to be impacted by increased demand from consumers while supplies not keeping up, I mean, one thing also to look at is as Seth mentioned the timing of the spending. So the spending seems to be front loaded. To, so to the extent that increased demand is going to put pressure on prices, you're going to see that. Now I've seen also arguments that because this is paid for, it's going to have it's not going to have a net impact on inflation through through deficit. But I think that there's a few additional nuances necessary there. One is the timing. Um, you, this is ultimately paid for by the net revenue um, that's being collected in the last five being paid for on an annual basis. So you may see those inflationary pressures upfront. But second, there is also a potential for increased inflation from demand from the um, marginal propensity to consume. Um, so a lot of this spending is going to lower and moderate income households that are more likely to spend. The tax increases, however, are going on very high income households that are less likely to spend. So if you think that that is a channel for inflation as well, that is also pushing in the direction of some amount of inflation. But I go back to my original point that you know, relative to the underlying economy, which is driven a lot by COVID-19, you know, this it's, you know, it's marginal um, rather than being the driving factor. Okay. Um, I wanted to uh, 
get on to some other topics um, uh, and see if you guys could get a little salty with us. Um, the uh, th That's been a big issue um, in the current version of the Build Back Better Act that passed the House. The cap on the state and local tax deductions for federal income taxes would be lifted to 80,000 for 10 years. So um, critics say this, um, this SALT provision is a tax cut for the rich after a lot of talk about having the wealthy pay their fair share. Um, do you guys agree with that? And um, do you think what we might see is instead what we've what's been proposed by Senators Mendez and uh, Menendez and Sanders? Um, they would just want to lift the SALT cap, but not for millionaires. Although this agreement that they've had has run into some problems this week. But um, uh, Seth, if you could start with, with us on this uh, SALT issue, do you agree with some of the criticism of having it in there right now? And how do you think it'll actually look um, in the end? Um, yeah, I generally agree with the, with the criticism that, that let's say, full repeal of the SALT deduction would be extremely regressive and a tax cut for the rich. Um, but uh, the bill now is a, more, is a more targeted repeal. I think it should be much more targeted than it is now, which I'll uh, discuss in a second. Um, but I think like one thing we need to be clear on is that, and that I think is really getting confused, is that the bill uh, as a whole is a major tax increase on um, on the wealthy, and there's sort of like sort of, sort of simply no doubt about that, um, despite the fact that um, the House bill does include uh, a, a relief, uh, relief, an increase in the salt cap that will benefit um, uh, some middle class people and uh, and many uh, upper you know high income people as well. Um, so I think that the difference, I mean, I think we're down to sort of two approaches to um, providing relief to the salt cap uh, um, that are, uh, I think, intended to be targeted at the middle class. Um, the House bill increases the cap from 10,000 to 80,000, which I think is a pretty badly way of uh, targeting relief to the, to the middle class. I mean, uh, vanishingly few middle class people most of them don't even most of them don't even itemize, you know, and they claim the standardized standard deduction anyway. Um, vanishingly few would take eighty thousand uh, dollars of a deduction, um, whereas uh, you know people who are millionaires are just going to claim that full deduction and benefit and benefit by some twenty five thousand dollars. The Senate approach, the Sanders Menendez approach, would allow um, an unlimited deduction. Um, but only for those under a certain amount of income. And so what Sanders has proposed is to, to have the deductions start phasing out uh, at $400,000 of income. Um, and then, you know, so the, the details of this aren't um, fully fleshed out, whether that's for singles, for, you know, if couples are going to be higher, um, how it will be phased out. Um, but it's a much better approach because what it does is gives no benefit to, um, you know, really high income people um, and really targets the salt relief at the, and I should say, at, you know, at the relatively few uh, middle class families that are affected by the salt cap. Okay, great. Thanks. And Kyle, what do you think people ought to know about the state of play for the salt cap? Yeah, so I'll, I'll, I, I agree with Seth's uh, analysis here, and I'll add just a few a few ad additional details here. So one is I'd really emphasize the 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 idea that this is going to that lifting the cap is going to benefit very very few middle income households. Um, this is a this is an itemized deduction. Uh, the 
the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act greatly increased the standard deduction. So there are very, very few middle income, truly middle income households that are itemizing. So any marginal increase in the value of the state and local tax deduction is not going to those households. It's, it's going to higher income households. And that you know, regardless of what you do here, you're going to be benefiting you know, high income households. Now, the definition of high income or what high income households are going to change. I mean, the house proposal here um, going up to 80,000, that benefits all the way up to the top. While the Senate proposal details we don't have we don't have full details, that's going to try to target it at a sliver of what I would still consider high income households, just not very, very high income households. Um, then the last point I'd make, and Seth made this point up front, is that if you look at the distributional analysis of the Joint Committee on Taxation, um, they put out um, on this, it is true that on net, high income households are facing a tax increase, uh, um, even with the state and local tax deduction. Now, some of that I caution is how the JCT slices things. If you look at households earning a million dollars or more on net, it is true that they are facing a tax increase and that's driven a lot by the surtax on high income households, very high income households, 10 million and above and the corporate tax increases. But I think that if you were to look at a sm smaller slice between 1 million and say 10 million, you still may be seeing tax cuts due to the House version. And I think that's what Senator Sanders is trying to avoid um, that's going on in the House proposal right now, that there are tax cuts on net for high income households um, when you start looking at smaller and smaller groups. Okay, great. Um, so I wanted to hit another area, um, which should be electric vehicles. So um, the House's version of the Build Back Better Act offers uh, tax credits worth up to $12,500 for electric vehicles. And part of that total, $4,500, goes only for union-made vehicles assembled in the U.S. So Tesla, Toyota, um, other companies, and uh, Senator Joe Manchin, whose state um, has some Toyota operations, have all complained about it. I wanted to ask you guys, um, I guess, Seth, if you could go first, um, what do you make of the EV credits overall? And um, also, do you think that they're significant enough that it would actually speed up the shift to electric vehicles and away from gasoline powered cars? Um, I think they will. I mean, I think they're, they're, um, uh, they will accelerate the, um, the shift to electric vehicles um, by one estimate uh, under this bill, 60% of all car sales in uh, the year 2030 um, will be electric vehicles. Um, but I'd, I'd also emphasize that I mean, this is one piece of, of, of a much larger um, uh, approach to uh, climate change and reducing emissions in the transportation sector is actually only a relatively small part of the um, overall climate bill. The much greater uh, impacts are, are through the um, power sector. Um, and in particular, with the, the most important policies are the tax credits for um, producers of renewable energy. Um, so, um, uh, but I do think, it, you know, it, it will increase take up. Um, there's also, you know, funding for uh, charging stations, uh, which, which are going to help as well. Um, and um, the one, I mean, I think the, man, you know, um, Senator Manchin's issue with it was this, there was this sort of add on for 
um, vehicles that are uh, assembled, but, you know, union made in the United States. Um, and so, you know, that's a reflection of, of, of uh, you know, pol po dual policy of both combating climate change and trying to boost wages. Um, but that's so that's the aspect that Senator Manchin has expressed uh, some disagreement with. Okay, great. Thanks, Kyle. What do you think on the, the EV topic? So I, I think um, addressing climate change is one of the positive aspects of the Build Back Better plan. Um, I think, however, there are downsides to the approach that they're taking here. I want in my mind, you know, there are a couple different approaches to climate change and addressing carbon emissions. So one is on the tax side, levy a tax to make it more expensive to pollute in the United States. On the other side is to enact tax credits to make it cheaper to, to pursue policies that have lower emissions. You know, on net and in theory, those can be identical. Um, but at the end of the day, I think because of the complexities of these things, they are not identical in that from my perspective, it would have been better for lawmakers to go with something like a carbon tax, which would have set a price on pollution. And then companies, the market could have figured out the best way to address, um, to reduce emissions and to address climate change. I think one of the downsides of having EV credits is with, you know, uh, with requirements for say union labor or made in America is that you're kind of presuming that these are the ways to go about it, but it might be better for the market to figure out what the best way is for, to reduce uh, emissions um, and address climate change. So I think there are, there are some costs to doing it this way. Um, um, even though you know, on paper in theory, they could be identical if, if designed right. Okay. Um, so I wanted to remind the viewers to go ahead and ask questions if you've got them. Um, we've gotten a bunch more and I wanted to jump to one of those. I think we might go, um, supposed to end about 1230. I think we might go 10 extra minutes since we've gotten a lot of good questions. Um, there's uh, both Cynthia and um, Mark have asked, uh, with this bill, are there going to be any provisions that affect estate taxes? Um, uh, whichever of you feels comfortable jumping in first on that. It's can't say it's an issue that I've reported on. Um, but anything in here for estate taxes? From my perspective, unfortunately not right now. There's no um, there's no estate taxes or there's no um, rolling back of even the uh, 2017 Trump tax cuts uh, that raised the estate tax exemption. Um, and there's not uh, reforms to the estate tax that um, would crack down on on um, on abusive uh, um or at least, you know, aggressive avoidance of, of the estate tax. Um, I, th I do think it's possible that some of those things can come in in the Senate, um, but right now there's there's nothing on the estate tax. Yeah, I, I was somewhat surprised that these things ended up being dropped, um, and it's, it's broader than the estate tax. Uh, President Biden had pushed for um, taxing um, unrealized capital gains at death, um, it, as, as a means to allow a, for a higher tax rate on, on capital gains. And that ended up being dropped as well. So, you know, while I think on the policy side there, um, on the center left, there is a big push towards um, broadening taxation um, of inheritances and estates, um, seeing that marginal lawmakers um, ended up being somewhat uncomfortable with these changes. So they ended up being dropped. Um, and, you know, if I were to guess, looking back, you know, or 
year back looking forward, um, I, I would have expected that at least something would have been done. Okay. Um, so another topic I, I wanted to, you guys to hit was just, um, I mean, what are the chances of the Build Back Better Act actually being enacted? I mean, it's passed the House, still needs to pass the Senate. There are expected to be decent number of changes in the Senate due to folks like Joe Manchin. Um, and what do you think its chances are? When do you think it'll actually happen? Uh, Chuck Schumer has said he wants to do it by Christmas. That seems uh, ambitious. And then also, what size do you guys think it'll be? Is it going to be roughly $2 trillion? Will it be cut down to $1.5 um, uh, you know, Kyle, you just finished speaking, so I'll let you take a take a sip of water and have Seth go first. <laughs> um, so I think the chances are very, very good that this bill would will pass. Um, and I would I would predict I wouldn't um, I wouldn't bet the mortgage on it, but I would predict that it's going to happen by um, uh, this month. Um, and so, you know, I, I think we're down to relatively like, you know, if you back up to where we started and um, with uh, President Biden's agenda and um, Senator Sanders's budget, um, you know, we're we're down to a relatively, you know, limited set of issues and a pretty narrow band of, you know, of a total um, price tag. Um, so like, you know, like you said, the, the, the issues that need to be resolved, um, salt, uh, you know, definitely, um, you know, Senator Manchin has said, um, he's opposed to having the paid leave, um, in the bill, which, um, I think would be very unfortunate if it falls out, but, um, uh, you know, uh, but that's certainly, um, uh, you know, in play at this point. Um, and then in terms of the overall price tag, I mean, it, it depends on how you measure it. Um, the bill uh, increases spending by about one one point six trillion over ten years. Um, and then if you include like the tax credits as investments, it, um, it's about two trillion. Um, I mean, I might expect that to shrink somewhat because of Senator Manchin, um, but not all that much. I mean, I think it's I think the I think it's the uh, you know ninety percent of the bill will, will stay the same. Okay. Um, Kyle, go ahead. Yeah, I, I generally agree with, with all of that, that um, it, I think that Build Back Better Act ultimately passes. I think before Christmas seems like a reasonable timeline. I think, I think there are other political challenges uh, involved if this bleeds over into next year, and I think that the Democrats want to avoid that. Um, and then I, I, I think that, you know, $2 trillion in spending, um, including the, the tax credits is a reasonable place that they, they will end up. Yeah. And, and I just add, you know, um, in terms of their urgency here, the child tax credit payments, the last ones would be done on December 15th. Um, and so I think the Democrats are going to want to continue those into January and not, not have them cut off, uh, suddenly. Mm -hmm. Um, so that's sort of an action forcing, um, uh, you know, uh, something that pr prevents uh, provides some urgency for them to get something done, um, and it would have to be you know somewhat in advance of January fifteenth. So I, I would expect it to happen before the the holidays. Okay, cool. Um, so we had two uh, viewer questions on um, uh, Roth conversions and and kind of IRA ret retirement fund questions um, from Steve and Mike. Um, Let's. I'll do Steve's question. He says, "Can you please clarify the impact of the Build Better, Build Back Better Act 
impact on Roth conversions. I'm planning on converting my assets in IRA to Roth in the next couple of years and want to know whether I should speed up the conversion before it passes in case it has a negative impact. Um, uh, hopeful one of you guys is, knows the answer to that. Uh, whoever, whoever does jump on in. My understanding is that that is that still that made it into the bill. And Seth can correct me if I am wrong. Um, that the the house side um, changes to that are in there, um, mm -hmm. and I think that that that's not something that's next couple of years timing. That's a January one timing issue, um, if I remember correctly. That this isn't something that's going to phase in over time, but it's going to apply. Um, uh, starting uh, the end of this year, or starting the beginning of next year. Yes, if you could correct. I him think that's you... right. Sorry, I'm having a little trouble hearing um, Victor at this point, but I think uh, what Kyle said is, is is correct. Okay, cool. No, so, sorry, maybe I just uh, wasn't being clear. Um, let's see. Uh... Uh, and so, Seth, you mentioned the child tax credit. Um, maybe that's a good for one of our last questions. Um, so the current version has the child tax credit. Sorry, I'm having trouble for... hearing at this point. Okay. Um, we can always j just focus on Kyle for starters. Um, so the current version has the child tax credit going for another year. This is the, the thing that led to payments of, of up to $300 per child each month that started back in July. Um, do you think it's likely to stay in that that there'll be a one-year extension of the child tax credit um, and what the Senate ends up um, passing? And um, then a separate question related to it is, um, is that enough time for the, there's been this view that the child tax credits might become so popular that politicians can't get rid of them. Uh, do you think just a one-year extension uh, is enough for that? Yeah, so this is def this is something, and Seth, if you missed that question, the, uh, the, the question is, you know, how likely do you think the one-year extension of the child tax credit um, is going, or how likely that's going to be included in the Build Back Better Act? And if it's included, um, is that going to build enough political support for it to be extended in the future? Um, and so my answer to that is, I think that Democrats are betting on increased popularity over time of the payments. And if history is any guide, temporary tax policy does seem to be made permanent at, um, over time. Now, I, I think that, you know, one additional piece that should be added here, especially when lawmakers, your viewers um, think about this, that if that's the case, um, that also means that, you know, in the back of Democrats' minds, this bill really isn't paid for or finance. Say you're going from something that costs $190 billion over 10 years because it's a one-year extension with the permanent full refundability to a $1 trillion program um, ultimately um, because you're making that the whole thing permanent. Um, so that, that now I think the way it's scored is fine because you score based on you know what the law says, but it does uh, it's something that I think lawmakers should have in the back of their mind that if they're betting on this to continue, then they are betting on um, a deficit impact uh, going forward. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think I would be um, optimistic that it, it will continue. I mean, I think it's it's a very visible salient uh, pro, you know, program for families. Um, I think it's having a huge impact um, and, and a documented impact on um, child poverty and on um, 
reducing food insecurity. Um, and I think that'll just be um, clearer uh, and you know over the next year. And I think people will build you know familiarity with it, and it's going to be hard to um, hard to take it away. Um, and I do think there are opportunities. I mean, so first, you know, Congress can always pay for um, extensions. They've done done it in the past when they created a program and paid for it over the long term, but then extended it and paid for that over the long term. Um, and there's also opportunities um, with things that are with other things that are expiring, uh, that are Republican priorities that where there's potential room for for compromises. So I think, um, uh, and you know, sometimes those are not paid for, but but um, but I do think it's a, you know it's a major priority of Democrats. I think um, you know, even though some Republicans um, or many Republicans have uh, have expressed opposition to the fact that it's fully refundable. Um, you know, there's there's been a uh, traditional support and growing support in the uh, among some Republicans for uh, a, a child benefit. Um, and so I'm optimistic that it would be extended. I, w I mean, I wish that it, they would would have done it for a lot more years in this bill. Um, because I, I just, you know, there, are, there just are risks when something expires after a year. Um, but uh, but if I had to bet, I, I, I do think it will be extended. Okay, great. Um, I think I'll make this the last question. And just, um, uh, Kyle, what else do you think um, you want? Do you want people to know about the Build Back Better Act? I mean, it's a huge bill. There's so many pieces of it. We touched on some of them, but. Um, is there any other um, nugget or two that you want people to know? And, and the same question for you, Seth, once Kyle's done. Yeah, we hit we hit upon this already. And I think it's still, there's still moving pieces. I still think that there may be changes to SALT. There could be changes to the child tax credit. When all things are all said and done. Um, you know, one, one thing I might add here, and we only got into it a little bit, is that, you know, I think, you know, the administration has championed this um, minimum tax proposal and the minimum tax agreement. That is also not set in stone. Uh, I know that you know, that there's been a lot of celebration of that and that a lot of countries have signed on to that. Um, now, the United States, we have legislation for enacting what's our version of Pillar 2, the minimum tax on foreign profits, but missing from this discussion is the other half of it. Um, and it still remains to be seen whether Pillar One, the other part of the, this uh, this agreement, ever gets enacted. So, you know, there's you know, whether it's you know this the child tax credit or the for the taxation of foreign profits, still a lot of moving pieces and still some uncertainty. Um, so, continue to pay close attention. Um, Seth, go ahead, please. I mean, I'll, I guess I'll go back to what we were talking about earlier. I mean, I think this debate has gotten. Um, uh, conflated and, and tied up with the inflation that we're experiencing, you know, at this current moment, um, you know, but this is, this is a bill that makes long, critical long-term investments in the country's future, um, both, um, you know, human and physical capital in, in children um, and in the climate. So I think, you know, um, the bill, you know, the spending is over, over uh, a longer term, um, and so the idea that it's going to have uh, much at all impact on inflation in the short term, um, I mean, I think everyone's focused on that, but the focus really needs to be on what this does on the, on the long term. Um, 
and then just you know that this bill lowers costs you know uh in, for families in so many different ways so i think uh, in the sense that um you know many people are worried about uh affording the basics um but this bill helps them uh helps low and middle income families uh with the cost of living in so many different ways Okay. Um, well, that's all we have time for today. We went over a little bit. Uh, thank you so much for being here, uh, Seth and Kyle. Um, for viewers, I'd like to say we hope you listen to our next episode tomorrow. We'll have Scott Sperling. He's the co-CEO of private equity firm Thomas H. Lee Partners, and he's the chairman of Mass General Brigham. Uh, that's the parent of Harvard University's teaching hospitals. Um, he'll be joining Barron's senior managing editor, Lauren Rublin, and healthcare reporter, Josh Nathan Kazis, for a discussion about healthcare innovation investment and policy in the post-COVID era. Um, that sounds like a lot. It sounds really good. Um, so thank you for listening today. And uh, thank you, Kyle, again, Kyle and Seth for being here. Uh, everybody have a great rest of the day. Thank you. You too. Thanks for having us. The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.